Welcome to the New Stories Podcast, Season 2. This episode features Anna Sukalarkas, an artist of Navajo, Creek, and Greek descent who works primarily with sculpture, installation, video, and performance art. Anna works at the University of Colorado Boulder as an assistant professor and has joined Sandy Spring Friends School as a virtual artist in residence for the month of November. Listen to head of school Dr. Rodney Glasgow interview Anna about her work and her time at SSFS. Then listen to a snippet of Q&A sessions with our middle and upper school students. Well, Anna, it's so great to see you again, <laughs> to have you with us here as our artist in residence and to have you as a guest on the podcast. And for those tuning in, I'm Dr. Rodney Glasgow. I'm head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School and really honored to be sitting with a fellow artist and a fellow social justice warrior in Anna. Today, we'll talk about Anna's artwork and her community work and sort of the the threading of all of those together and just her life's work. So really excited about it. And Anna, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the podcast. Hi, my name is Anna Sukalarkas. I'm currently an assistant professor in art and art history at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm Navajo, Creek, and Greek, and um, excited to be here. Thank mm-hmm. you. And, and you've been around our neck of the woods before, so would love to just have you talk about some of the schools you've been associated with in yeah. our area. I, before coming to the University of Colorado, I taught 16 years in K through 12 independent schools all around the country and the world, actually. I started my first year of teaching at Beauvoir Elementary, the National Cathedral Elementary School, where I taught second grade. I've taught at Albuquerque Academy in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the Browning School in New York City, and the American School in London, England, before settling in at Sidwell Friends for about 10 years. So we've got to call some names just in that roster. We got to call Jolene Spain Thomas, whom we have in common. I imagine we have Josie Palelo in common. And I imagine, obviously, Hayes and Shakira, who are here with us. So (laughs) So many great people. I'm right. The universe makes no mistakes. So I would love for you to talk about your artwork and, and how you became an artist. So my father is an artist. He makes Native American jewelry. And growing up, he was always making art in the evenings and spending his days as a construction worker. And I was always in his studio playing with materials, trying to create my own pieces, usually sculpture. And as I kind of went through school and and studied in undergrad and grad school, that's really where I started developing my artistic voice and became interested in connecting materials and identity and culture and experiences that I grew up with as a Native woman. Mm, mm. And take us back to, to yourself as a child and growing up in that Native community And what are some of the things that you experienced, learn, and reveal there that show up still in your art? I think it really comes down to storytelling, Mm -hmm. Um, hearing, you know, traditional stories from my dad and my grandma and traveling back to New Mexico. I grew up between New Mexico and Kansas and traveling back to our homelands and taking part in different ceremonies. I think that kind of my basis in Navajo culture and philosophies and stories has really informed the way that I work and the foundation for a lot of the pieces that I make now. And while they use newer materials and kind of touch on a lot of different conceptual ideas, 
they are still based in those Navajo philosophies and beliefs. And thinking about, as you introduced yourself, you are Navajo, Creek, and Greek. And so as a multi-ethnic person with three very rich traditions, how did you integrate or not, right, all of those into, into your art and just into your being? What was it like to have those three very distinct influences? I think that um, when I went to college, I, that was where I really started to have a true interest in Native American history. I um, was a double major in Native American studies and studio art. And it was really there that I began to kind of bring together those kind of the idea of making work that spoke to my history and my background, you know, my culture. And it was really easy because I am visibly native. I have dark skin. I have dark hair to people that know native tribes. Like I look Navajo, they know that I'm Navajo. <laughs> and so it's, it's a physical identifier. And so that was easy to integrate that into my work because that was just who I am day in, day out. But at the same time, I was raised that I'm Greek. I don't say I'm part Greek or that I'm a little bit Greek, that mm. culturally, I'm both fully Greek and fully Navajo, fully native. Mm -hmm. And so while that hasn't been as apparent in my work, there are different times that it's, it's peaked out. And I'm really excited because right now I'm part of an exhibition in Athens, Greece, and it's mm -hmm. my first show there. And so I'm showing a piece that's dealing with Navajo mythologies, but I'm really excited to, to explore that more. And I'm going, I usually go and visit my family every couple of years in Greece. And so I'm excited to hopefully start sharing my work there more. And I think that's something that's going to change is that exploration more of, of my Greek identity. As you're saying that, I'm trying to get a window into your experience and also having looked at some of your artwork and also heard you speak at our assembly with our lower schoolers as part of your artist in residence. And it's coming up for me, I'm wondering how you navigate those also two distinct histories and perspectives, right? A lot of your work is about anti-Eurocentrism and sort of anti-colonial themes. And yet you're holding this Greek identity alongside the native identity. And so I don't even know if I can formulate a question, but it's just, what is that like? <laughs> well, well, I do think about that a lot. And I like to think a lot about the similarities and connections between those two backgrounds. I mean, they're both insanely long histories, long connections with histories that go back millennia. And I think that's really interesting to me is that on both sides of the Atlantic, I have a connection that goes back hundreds, if not thousands of years. And that my, my native family, we can trace our native family back to the land that we've been on for hundreds of years, but then we can also do that in Greece as well. Mm. And that my last name, Sukalarkas, can be traced to a specific village and a house that has been in our family for 400 years. And so the idea of lifespan and of time is so rich in both of those, but there's also, I think, a very unique kind of like this ethnocentric view in both of the cultures I come from that we are like very important people and we don't and like <laughs> if you're native you should be spending time with your native family and being on your native land well that's exactly what Greeks think too <laughs> <laughs> and so when I go and visit my family in Greece 
I, I'm not allowed to go and visit all different parts of Greece. Like I'd love to go to different islands like Mykonos or Santorini, but my Greek family's like, you're Cretan. Why would you go anyplace else? Shouldn't you be in Crete visiting your family? <laughs> and so there's this cultural weight or guilt or love where the, the expectation is, is that you're going to spend time with your family and your community. And, and I love that, that both feel that drive and that connection. And I think that's something when I first went back, when I was in college to Greece, I was the first person in my um, family, the American side to go back to Greece in probably 50 years and really renew those connections that we had because they're not distant. These are my dad's first cousins and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so I went back over there and I was nervous, you know, being this dark skinned American, how I was going to be treated. And it was amazing because once I met people and they knew I was a Sufalarkis and that I spoke a little Greek, they would just grab me and like shove food down my throat and be like, you're, you're with us. <laughs> and it was a beautiful thing. And so I think that it is very complicated and complex, like my identity and it's contradictory in many ways, but I think that's who we are now. In 2021, that's how many of us live. We have complex, contradictory identities, and that's okay. It's not easy. It's not simple and you know clean. It's very messy. And I think that's just something when we acknowledge who we truly are, we have to be aware of those things and to be accepting of those things as well. And while it is contradicting Indigenous to a, a renowned colonizer in many ways, I think that I am trying to deal with that within my work, within myself in a lot of ways. And, but I don't, I don't downplay it and I don't push it away. I definitely want um, to be open to, to what all that means. Mm. And you've spoken to the importance of the land and where you could trace yourself back to on, on all the different sides. And it had me in mind that our seniors last year, you know, every year the seniors give the senior gift, something back to the school. And they gifted us a land acknowledgement to go and as a plaque to go on campus. And it, it made me wonder your take on land acknowledgements. You see them now at the opening of conferences where we're acknowledging the land that we're convening on, or even at schools as we're about to do. And I, I wonder just what that brings up for you in just in that cultural practice. A land acknowledgement, like the way that a lot of institutions do them is, is different than how I grew up, like in terms of my Navajo background, but I think it's different yet it's similar in Navajo way. When you introduce yourself, you, you talk about who your family is, who, what your clans are, who your parents are. And basically what you're doing is you're creating context for your relationship to the people around you and that you're interacting Mm. with. And, and you're acknowledging those shared connections. And I think the idea of a land acknowledgement of speaking about the people that were there previous or that are currently there, I think is so important because it not only acknowledges the rich history of what is known as America now, but it's signifying that this space is safe for indigenous people Mm. because while there aren't many of us out there and many people will never actually meet a native american making sure that when people do enter your space and your community i think a land acknowledgement shows that you're open to their presence and their experiences and that is so important 
when we first moved to Colorado and I went to a parent meet and greet at my um, kids' elementary school, it was over mm. Zoom and <laughs> because we moved here in the middle of the pandemic. And I had no idea kind of what to expect. But the fact that that first meeting, the PTO meeting started out with a land acknowledgement, I mean, it was beautiful. It was, it almost moved me to tears because I knew we were meant to be there. And I knew that this place was safe for my kids. Mm. And that, that was huge. Mm. Um, so I think that, that while it seems very small, it's such a huge kind of act and a, a greeting, so... No, I totally resonate with that and that sense of I'm supposed to be here and a part of me has always been here, right? That's how you know that. And I think about, for me, uh, the land of our school sits adjacent to and probably was a part of the Underground Railroad and just knowing and feeling that connection to the ancestors. And, and I would venture to say um, that the Native American ancestors who are on this land still walk with us. You can feel it. We wish you had come uh, to us <laughs> because I think you would feel it. So whenever you get a chance to come and see us in person, uh, just to be on this land, I think you would feel the energy of, of that. You spent some time with us as artists in residence, and I, I wonder just what that experience was like for you and and what you're walking away with about having engaged with us. We loved having you here, but I would love to hear how you experienced it. It's been an amazing experience to meet, even if it's over Zoom, to meet students and to hear their questions and to speak with teachers and different people throughout your school community. But it's what I love hearing are the questions that students ask. Sometimes they make you reflect on your own experiences in new ways. And it's always fun to hear those new perspectives because it lets you think about things that you really haven't hashed out maybe, or you thought you did, and they're giving you a new perspective on it. And that's what's so exciting. And that's what I love about K through 12 schools is that even a first or second grader can ask the most poignant question that seems to them just a simple question, but then you realize like it actually makes you reconsider your your whole experience and mm. and so and I, I feel like I've had that in in the school and the class meetings I've had so far so that's been great awesome and and I was looking on one of your websites about one of your exhibits and you're doing an exhibit if I'm not mistaken about bind or burn and I was trying to catch them. Like, I feel like there's some deep cultural and historical <laughs> significance and connections here. And I just want to talk to Anna about it. So will you tell us about that exhibit and, and what's behind, as I know your art always raises awareness of, of cultural significance for us. Yeah, so that was an exhibition. It just closed at the museum at Colorado College. It was a large solo exhibition, and there's going to be a book coming out about it that documents the ex exhibition, but it was a mix of installation and sculpture, drawings and video, a lot of different types of work, but specifically the title To Binder to Burn speaks to some sculptures that I made in the piece and some drawings. The sculptures are pieces of wood and plaster casts and pieces of Ikea furniture remnants that are bound together and there's porcupine quills on them. And what I was trying to do was to create an illustration, like a sculptural visualization of what decolonization looks like. It's been kind of a catchword for a lot of institutions, schools and organizations. And so when I was thinking about ideas of decolonization, if we made, if I made an artwork, what would that look like? 
And then what I kind of came to realize was that is the goal decolonization or is it indigenization? Mm. Like, are we trying to integrate mm. indigenous ideas and beliefs into the structure of this thing, this institution? Because are we actually, how are we, should we be dismantling it or should we be evolving it? Mm. And so thinking about those things led me to a lot of the pieces that are in the exhibition. Mm. I'm sitting with that decolonization versus indigenization, right? And it's like the, we, are we dismantling or are we coming from an appreciative inquiry? And, and you've left us with a lot to think about regarding that. And when I saw even the title of the exhibit and think about binding, you know, binding is such a cultural word. And a lot of cultures practice binding in different ways. And some have a more positive bent to binding and, and where it's like I'm a holding together. And for some, binding is restrictive. And so I think it goes to your processing of, is this a decolonization or is this an indigenization? I love that that we're sitting with that. You know, I'm thinking about you as a multimedia artist and wondering just how you approach your process and where you get your inspiration from. When you sit down and you just in this exhibit, you work with so many different tools and modes. So how do you figure that out? <laughs> So I, I work across a lot of disciplines. Something that I've always been interested in is making sure that I never have just one style or way of working. I like the idea of being a native artist that works across many disciplines and works in unexpected mm. ways. And while that's kind of an overarching goal, when I have ideas or start get going on different pieces, I usually have the initial idea. And then from there, I think about the best materials or medium to work through. And because I think about like, if I was a painter and had one style that I always painted in, but I had all of these different ideas, would that be the only way I would answer that query? And so I like the idea of really considering the materiality of things, of creating object versus video, or maybe performance versus installation and making sure that I find the right medium to work in. And I try to be really open to exploring that. And sometimes I start out in one mode of working and then switch and realize actually this would be better this way. And so I, I try to be very open throughout that whole process of working in my studio to different ideas in different ways. And in hearing you describe that, you used the word query, and it made me think, that's right, Anna was steeped in Quaker <laughs> educational philosophy for a while. I wonder, where did you find synergy and dissonance, if you found either, as you worked in a Quaker environment? Sort of, how was it as a multi-ethnic Native person working in a Quaker place? I think it took me a while to, to find my place. When you think first of Quaker, you don't necessarily think of people of color. And that's something when I began working and teaching it said, well, figuring out my place within that and how that worked for me. But I, I think that through meeting for worship, you realize that it can be anything you need during that time. And there's so many ways to enter that space and that silence. And after a while, it becomes such a comfort to know 
that you have that time. And even before and after meetings, when you begin things and end things with a moment of silence, just in even over Zoom, taking that time with you all during classes, before and after classes has been, it reminds me of to slow down. It reminds me to take a breath for a moment. And I miss that. One of the most kind of, I think it was frustrating in the beginning. And now that I'm in a different institution that I appreciate so much was in meeting for business with faculty. And I, oh my gosh, it frustrated me so much, (laughs) you know, when I was there in it, but the idea of speaking only once or really reflecting and being thoughtful about what you were saying and the, the meeting moved very slowly. But now when I'm in a faculty meeting, I, I miss that. I miss the thoughtfulness of comments and mm. the, the speed of us really taking in what we're discussing. And I think that it's just so funny to me, that's actually one of the things I miss the most is, is being in a community where we take the time to be thoughtful about process and about mm. responses. I do miss that a lot. Mm. No, thank you for, for sharing that. So in my final question, I'm thinking about our school's motto, which we borrow from George Fox of let your life speak. And, and you have certainly let your life speak a number of things into existence. And so I wonder, as we have budding young artists and activists listening to this podcast, just what have you learned along the way that you could pass to them about how they could let their lives speak to their own truths the way you have used your life to speak your truths? I think it's hard sometimes to, when you think you're the only one that has had a certain experience or feels a certain way about things. And I think having confidence in your voice, even when it's hard to speak up about things is really important, be it activism, or if you see somebody bullying another, you know, kid or anything like that, that those moments of speaking up are so important. And that to know that other people are having a hard time, even though that might be what we do, and it might seem like, oh, we do it so easily, that it is hard. That, that it stays hard even in your 40s to mm-hmm. speak up and to know that you see something that, that's happening that's not right. And you know that if you don't speak up, nobody else will. And that's a scary thought because we don't want that thing to happen again. We want to help correct this behavior or what's happening. And so just realizing that, that it's okay to have that fear and to kind of just go with it is one of the most important things that I think I wish I would have known early on and and Mm -hmm. just that, that confidence in in speaking up. Right. It is almost, I saw a visualization of the, the term Quakerism, right? That they say comes from the idea that you're quaking from the inside, which could be both a fear and an inspiration to speak, Mm -hmm. right? That is compelling you to speak even through your own internal resistance. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) for sharing this space with us, for being our artist in residence and for sharing your time, your talent and your life with the world through your art. It's been a true pleasure to reconnect with you. And until we see each other again, I will hold you in the light and your work. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Up next, hear snippets from a Q&A session with Anna and our middle and upper school students. Thank you, teachers, for making time in your schedules for today. Thank you, students, in advance for your attention and your great questions, if you haven't had any after hearing Anna Sukalarkas. If you don't know me, my name is Hayes Davis. I'm the Assistant Director of, of Institutional Equity, Justice, and Belonging. And today's programming is part of our celebration of, of Indigenous American, American Indian Heritage Month at Sandy Spring Friends School. I have the great honor to introduce Anna Sukalarkas, and I'm going to read her bio. Anna Sukalarkas works in sculpture, installation, video, and performance. She received her Bachelor of Arts from Dartmouth College with degrees in Native American Studies and Studio Art. She went on to receive her MFA from Yale University in Sculpture. Her work, has, her work has been part of national and international exhibitions at venues such as Rush Arts in New York, the Arts Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, the National Museum of Art at Duke, at Duke University, Crystal Bridges Museum, the Museum of Contemporary Native Arts, the Heard Museum, and the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. Sukalarkas has participated in various art residencies, including Skohegan School of Painting and Sculpture, Yado, and the Andrew W. Mellon Artist in Residence at Colorado College for the 2019-2020 academic year. Sukalarkas lives and works in Colorado. Anna, thank you so much for being here with us. I turn it over to you. All right. Thank you all so much for allowing me to be here with you this morning. It's really early right now in Colorado. It's about 7 a.m. <laughs> So nice uh, sunrise going on. Like Hay said, I am Native American. My tribes are Navajo and Creek, and I'm also Greek. My family comes from the island of Crete in Greece. And so growing up, my first language was Navajo, and then I spoke English, and now um, the, the second language I speak the best is actually Greek. And I think that Throughout my work, I've always been really interested in exploring the different facets of my identity. I think that many of us nowadays are have very complex stories and complicated stories in our families about where we come from and who we are and, and how we came to be. And I think that's what makes us so interesting. And so I try to kind of be open to those things. So while I am Native, I'm always very, very open about my Greek side as well, because that's a very important part of who I am. We have a question. What was your recent um, artwork? Were you able to hear that? What was your most recent piece? My most recent piece, let's see. I had an art show in at Colorado College that was up from February um, until August of this year. And it was at their museum, which is in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And there were two, like, like when you walk in the museum, there's like big rooms. I had two big rooms and a hallway that were all my artwork. And a lot of that work I had done in the past year and a half while I was at, I was an artist in residence on their campus. And a lot of it had to do with ideas of, of colonialism and decolonization. That's really become a big word within schools and institutions is how do we decolonize ourselves? How do we, how do we break down that structure of colonization? And so I wanted to visually make pieces that I thought, because I was like, how, 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 what, what would that look like in a sculpture? What would that look like in a performance? 
in a video, that type of thing. And so that's what a lot of the work was about, was about my kind of like mental illustrations of what decolonization would look like. We have a new question over here. Yeah. Um, I was just curious if you could speak a little bit more to your um, opinions on Thanksgiving and the celebration of Thanksgiving, because you mentioned that briefly. Yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of stories out there about Thanksgiving. I think that probably 99% of them are factually incorrect. <laughs> and we probably won't, won't ever really know um, about kind of those interactions exactly. But I think the idea of Thanksgiving is a wonderful thing. Like the idea of coming together with your community, with your family, with whoever makes up the idea of family within where you live and, and having a great meal and, and being grateful for, for those connections and those relationships and having really good food. I'm, I'm completely into that. And I have always supported that. I think that there's no reason to bring in Native Americans into this holiday. There's never, and so I've actually spoken to a lot of schools about that, about this idea of, of why do we even teach about Thanksgiving? It would be different if we spoke about the, what, what were our tribes in the area doing during harvest time and how did they celebrate that? That would be really exciting to kind of talk about and think about. I just spoke with here in Boulder, Colorado with our schools locally and that was one question I posed is why, why do, why are we even worried about what happened out in Massachusetts during this time when we don't even know that it really happened? It's like hearsay. And so why wouldn't we focus on local tribes and what they were doing during harvest time and talk about that during Native American Heritage Month rather than kind of this stereotypical Thanksgiving? So, so yeah, so I, I support the idea of Thanksgiving, but I don't see any reason that you need to fold Native Americans into that. <laughs> And then also somebody asked me what I do celebrate Thanksgiving, but in the way that we talked about, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> and there's no pilgrim hats or anything like that in our house. And my, my favorite meal is turkey and mashed potatoes and broccoli casserole. <laughs> so you've shared with us some of where your inspiration comes from for certain pieces. How do you decide what materials you want to use? I think I allow myself to be really open to using a lot of different materials. I think as an artist, I try not to box myself into what I think Native American artists should use or what things should look like. So I try not to box myself in in terms of the materials I use because I feel like sometimes people feel like they are a painter and they have a certain style. So whatever they're trying to respond to, they have to do it within their own style in paint. And I've always worked very purposefully to not have a style necessarily and to work across disciplines because I didn't want to be defined in that way. I didn't want people to see my work and say, oh, that looks like Anna's work, that I wanted it to always be unexpected. And so I'm, I always allow myself to be open to using the material that best suits the idea. And, and sometimes that might be performance documented in photography, or maybe it's performance documented in video, or maybe it's a video or an installation. And I try to be really open to those things. But, but that's something that I, the, that's one of the most important parts of my process, I think, 
is coming up with an idea and then figuring out how to execute it. Hello. Um, I just want to um, ask, when did you make your like first art piece and why? I, I, I actually, I don't know if when I remember being my first art piece, my first art piece, I remember being in the back of a classroom when I was like five years old and somebody put clay in front of me and I started braiding the clay and creating just like creating all these like braids of clay all in front of me. And so that's my first memory of actually making something that, that was meant to be art. And it was more in middle school where I started making sculptures and different things like that. But it's kind of funny because when I, I was really interested in working with clay and ceramics when I was younger and I used to take after my family didn't have very much money growing up. And so we I didn't get to do a lot of outside classes or anything like that. But the one class I was able to take was a community like class, like at the community hall where, where we got to use pottery. And as I got older, I really liked using pottery and I liked making pots and different structures. But what I realized is that that came with a lot of baggage because I was a Native American artist using clay. People ex really expected me to make pieces like like that pot right there they expected me to make work that looked really Native American and all these things and I hated that I hated this idea that they were trying basically telling me what to make and I think that's what really pushed me away from using clay and trying all these other materials was because I always and even now when I meet people and they ask me what do you do and I'm like oh I'm an artist and they're like oh so do you make pottery <laughs> I want to kind of change those reactions that people have and those assumptions they have. And so that's why I pretty much use everything but clay now. <laughs> Hi, Anna. Thank you for your wonderful speech today. So once I hear about your sharing, I have a question about, because since we're in the high school right now, like most of us are deciding to choose a college major. If I realize like I am also like get interest into the like studio art, but I want to like major in the like biochemical engineering, it is kind of like similar to your high school experience. So what kind of things like change your mind to change you like directly to the college major? Because if I were you, I, 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 if I am the like representative of American to get some like competition of like science, I will like probably major in science, but not in studio art. So that's my question. I think that for me personally, it was really about what I was passionate about and what I was interested in about. And I think sometimes when you're younger, everybody, you get a lot of pressure. Like people see you a certain way, like you're a scientist, you're the math person, you're, you know, the science person, you're an engineer, so you have to keep doing that. But, but you change and you evolve. And especially when you get to college, you have new experiences and you realize that instead of just thinking about yourself as an engineer, there's like 20 different types of engineering that you can do. And I think finding that passion and trying just taking those different classes is important and actually going into that and then taking the other classes that you're interested in and, and kind of navig navigating your way through that. But I don't think that labeling yourself early on will help you in the end. I think that you really have to find what you like. And if, if you grow and change and you end up liking literature instead, that's totally fine. Like you're, you're allowed to evolve, right? As a learner, as a person. And, and I think that's what's so exciting about going to going from high school to college is that you see the way that 
that your interests change and that you change as a person. And while, and I was really, really lucky, like, even though I was like the science and math person that got recruited by a school to go there, my parents were like, do whatever you want, just be happy. And, and that's why I ended up with the double major because I couldn't decide between the two and I like them both. And then in the end, that really is what I do is both of those things. Thank you so much. <laughs> so my only question is like when you're making that art piece and you have like no inspiration, what do you do to find that inspiration? I, I think the, the usual thing art teachers would say is sketch sketch and just keep sketching <laughs> but that doesn't work for me personally all the time i i usually watch movies and i read books i i mean a lot of what i do is influenced by interactions and experiences and so it could be one piece might come out of of an interaction that i had with somebody at the grocery store or like a, a lot of times sometimes it's like stuff that is not great like microaggressions or something like that right and and it, it kind of like pushes me to think about something and, and an idea. And so I think that was one thing that was hard about the pandemic was that I wasn't interacting with a lot of people. It was just my kids and my husband. And so I felt like I couldn't come up with any ideas a lot during the pandemic. I didn't have a lot of time because my kids were in doing online school just like I'm sure you guys were doing. And so I felt very kind of stunted in terms of my kind of creativity because I was looking for things. But I think when I did an artist residency this past June, I was able to go to museums for the first time in a long time. And that was huge. Like being able to see other artwork and then that fuels this, like the creativity again in myself. And so for me, I don't think like, oh, just like going here or thinking about this is going to give me an idea. I try to really be open to any type of influence and being open to ideas coming from anywhere. And also a small little follow-up question. When you're like, I guess, planning or designing a sculpture, when you like choose materials that you're going to use for it, are there ever times where in the middle of like building the sculpture, you think that a certain material would be better in certain spots and you like substitute it do you ever like switch around materials mid sculpture yes <laughs> yes I think that and that that's just kind of the way I work like I'm not again a lot of it comes down to deadlines because I do show a lot and so sometimes I might have to just finish a piece in that and then the next time around um, I'll do it. Some of my work that I'm showing tomorrow in the upper school assembly, the sculptures that I finished at Colorado College, I did these casts of hands like in plaster, and then I coated them with this weird black rubbery paint on stuff. And it just, it, it didn't look. And so in one of the sculptures, it looks completely different. And then all the rest of the sculptures have this shiny black paint that I used instead that looks a lot better. And so well, well, I know, and I've now told you that those are different. When people walk into the museum, all they see is like a hand painted black. <laughs> so they don't really notice it, which is nice. I don't think anybody has ever pointed out that there was a difference in the surface that I used or the material because they didn't notice. And so, so yeah, so I definitely have done that. Thank you all so much for um, listening and being attentive and asking some great questions. Anna, thank you so much. This was great. Let's give Anna all like, you know, Zoom clap. 
<laughs> happy jazz hands, happy hands. And thank you so much, everybody. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the New Stories Podcast. 